Well, I apologize in advance that you don't have a better voice to listen to this morning. I feel bad because I don't even think I can preach a full 50 minutes. Really, I will do our best here today. Hey, grab your Bible and turn to the book of Esther. We've been talking about where to find it. If you're um, newer to the scriptures, one of the best ways to find the book of Esther is open up your Bible about halfway. You're probably going to find yourself somewhere around uh, Proverbs or Psalms. And if you do, just take a left-hand turn and the next book is Job and then the next book is the book of Esther. And that's where you're going to find us here this morning. The book of Esther, we're going to be in chapter 3. And today we meet a new character in our study in the book of Esther. And this individual's name is Haman. And Haman gives us a very vivid description of pride. A very vivid description of pride. And when we got thinking about pride, this is a widespread problem that has infected all of society and even found its way into the inner sanctums of church ministry. Nobody is exempt from having to deal with this disastrous, impacting issue of pride. All of us are infected in one way or another. In his book, A Mind Awake, C.S. Lewis describes pride as well as anyone he has said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. He goes on, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Think about it, folks. Pride separates. Pride separates husbands and wives. Pride separates parents and children. Pride splits churches. Pride polarizes community. But most of all, pride separates us and God. Now, we've heard from C.S. Lewis. Here's what Ben Franklin said about it. He said, there's perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive. And then he says, even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome pride, I should probably be proud of my humility. He's very honest. Here's the problem with pride. It's rooted in some level of truth in our goodness and ability. You know, you can do that well. You are talented. You did succeed. You do look nice today. But the problem with pride is it doesn't stop there. It goes on because it must exert itself above others. I elevate my ability and attempt to reduce that in others. I must be on top. Others must be beneath me. They can't do this better than me. 
Here's one of my favorite stories on pride ever. It was during the Battle of the Wilderness in the Civil War, and Union General John Segwick was inspecting his troops. At one point, he came to a parapet over which he gazed out in the direction of the enemy. And the officers around him said, you know, that's unwise, General. Perhaps you should duck while passing the parapet because they are shooting at us. Nonsense, said the general. Those idiots, they couldn't hit an elephant from that dis... Yeah, I think you know what happened at that point. Well, today's study pulls a curtain on a classic example of pride and what it does to an individual. And there you are in the book of Esther, chapter three. You have your study guide as well. Let's work through this together. Your study guide is gonna help us to navigate through a number of details on this. And I hope and pray it's gonna be a help to us as we leave today. Here's four people we've talked about. Number one is Xerxes. We learned from Xerxes, God can handle anyone. I don't know who your Xerxes is, but you know what? God's got this thing. You don't need to worry about it. Then there's Vashti. Don't place your destiny in things. You realize she had it all going for her and she lost it like that. You can't put your hope and destiny in things. Esther came onto the scene and we realized that God can use you he can use your tough background. He can use your challenge. He can use all of that because he has a grand plan that involves all of that for his glory. And then there's Mordecai that God gives us second chances to obey him. And what a beautiful opportunity that was to talk through some of that. So here we are, Esther chapter three. Another five years have passed since last week's study in chapter two. And nine years have passed since the very beginning of our discussion together in the book of Esther. And here we are, Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Our last chance to stand up. How about you stand with me? I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of Esther chapter 3. And if you're wondering, because I know some of our translations may not mesh exactly um, I'm reading from the NIV, the New International Version of the Scriptures, and here it is, Esther 3, 1 through 6. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy 
all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This is going to be an interesting pickup for us today. Have a seat. Let's get to work. Here we are at number one in our study guide. I want us to realize a few things about Haman before we jump into some application points about pride for us. Number one point about Haman this morning is Haman had pedigree. He had pedigree. And if you remember, <clears throat> Esther and Mordecai are their Persian names corresponding to Persian gods. They had Jewish names as well, while Haman is no different. Haman is a Persian name related to the Elamite god named Human or Humban. And now my guess is the name Hamadath of the Agagite may not ring a bell in your mind. Now, I want you to realize, though, this is a very significant individual. And in 1 Samuel 15... I want us to connect on a little bit of history here. Do we have a passage up for this? In 1 Samuel 15, there is some discussion back from King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. Notice what happened back in that day. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took, notice who this was, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And all of his people he totally destroyed with a sword. With Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fatted calves, the lamb, everything that was good that they were unwilling to destroy completely. Um, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So just for history's sake, understand that a number of years prior to where we are studying in Esther, Saul, the very first king of Israel, took on the Amalekites, took on Agag, their king. They defeated them. Saul took in Agag and all of the best and destroyed everything else. But then Samuel stepped on the scene and said, you know what, God told you you were supposed to kill everyone, to wipe them all out. And so Samuel actually took the life of Agag, the king. How does that affect us here in Esther chapter 3? Here's where it is in verse 1. Haman, son of Hamadatha, notice this, the Agagite. Haman was a relative of King Agag. All the way back in this connection with King Saul, Haman had pedigree. He was one that was to be a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag. It was the enemy of Israel during Saul's reign. He had royalty in his genes, and it seemed to pay off because here's number two. Haman had position. <clears throat> Haman had position. Now, I don't know why Haman all of a sudden rose to power in, in the um, kingdom of Xerxes. Potentially, it was this pedigree that he had and the elevation of position with Agag from the past. But he was bestowed special honor, and in fact, honor where everyone was supposed to bow down before him whenever he would come through. 
And this kind of went to his head a little bit. We noted that Haman was a descendant of King Agag. Can I show you one other thing? Would you look back at chapter 2 in Esther? Just flip back a page to Esther chapter 2. Here's Mordecai. Mordecai in Esther chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Let me give you just a little bit of background. We're going to see about this position and what was going on between Mordecai and Haman. If you notice on this, not only did he have pedigree, not only did he have position, here's the background. Mordecai was a descendant of King Saul. Is this kind of coming together in your mind a little bit? Mordecai was a descendant of King Saul. King Saul, eventually with Samuel, killed King Agag and all of those individuals of the Amalekites, from whom descended Haman. So there's a little rift there going all the way back to Saul and to Agag, Agag between Mordecai and Haman. And so here's this perspective on why Mordecai would not bow to Haman. The Targum, which is the Hebrews commentary on the Old Testament, suggests, and I quote, no self-respecting Benjamite, which is what Mordecai would, would bow before a descendant of the ancient Amalekite enemy of the Jews. This also gives some perspective why Haman wasn't satisfied to just get back at Mordecai. Because verse 5 in chapter 3 says, when Mordecai, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he said, forget about the idea of only killing Mordecai. Let's take them all out. Let's take all the Jews out in the kingdom of Xerxes. And this revealed Haman's heart, that Haman had pride. Okay. So here we are at the big discussion for us. And it comes under number three, Haman had pride. Haman started believing all the hype about himself. He started to get tied up in self-significance, and not only did his anger boil toward one who didn't think the same way, it turned into a grand scheme to enact this Hitler-esque revenge to eradicate the entire Jewish population of Persia. One man didn't bow. Millions of people were going to die. Now, that's pride. I got thinking this week of some examples. We've already seen the words of C.S. Lewis and Ben Franklin and the example of the Union General John Segwick. Here's another one, and I think you'll quickly remember this individual. Pride was one of the signature attitudes of the former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali. Remember this big phrase? Say it with me. I am 
the greatest. He had a few other great quotes. One was, it's just a job. Grass grows, birds fly, waves pound the sand. I beat people up. That was one of his. Another one, he said, when you're as great as I am, it's hard to be humble. One quote he said, age is whatever you think it is. You're as old as you think you are. However, that's not a quote he could live up to. If you saw Ali in his latter years, he was a Parkinson's disease victim, an overweight ex-fighter, whose hands shook and whose flying feet shuffled. But the most telling thing to me, I remember when I was looking at some of the quotes of Ali's later years, he said this, I had the world, and it wasn't nothing. He said. So are many examples of pride today. We've seen Satan had pride. Ben Franklin talked about it. General Sedwig talked about it. Haman dealt with it. Muhammad Ali dealt with it. And truth be told, if you are in this room right now and you can breathe, we all deal with it too, don't we? So I've come up with this mathematical equation. I've been wondering how long have we been dealing with pride? So here's this mathematical equation. Go ahead and work through this. This is highly scientific. What are you laughing for, huh? So um, first of all, calculate how long um, you've been alive. What's your current age? So for me, that's 47. So here's how I'm calculating how long I've been dealing with pride. So first of all, add in your age, 47. Then subtract that by any moments that you may have been knocked unconscious, <laughs> under general anesthesia, or in a coma. So for me, I had three surgeries and a colonoscopy, and I've been under general anesthesia for about five hours. So here's how this is working. Then I realized that, well, we sleep about one-third of our lives. So one-third of 47 is 15 and a half years. But then I got thinking about it. A lot of my dreams, I've been proudful. So let's divide that in half, meaning uh, that's about seven and three-quarter years. So that in all my days alive, I've been dealing with pride for nearly 40 years. And I hope that equation has been a help to you spiritually this morning. How long have you been dealing with pride? We've all been in the same boat, gang. And from what I've read, from what I've learned, and here's the big thing, from what I've lived, because I've lived this, people, I've found six predominant ways that pride shows itself in our lives. Six predominant ways pride shows itself in our lives. And, and here's what I want you to think about. These are on your sheet there. More than merely writing them down. Ooh, we got to get these down in our sheet. No, more than merely writing them down. I want us to look at these as an evaluation tool. So forget about just merely keeping a full sheet of notes. I want you to think about an evaluation tool. Are there any of these that I really deal with? And in fact, maybe you mark 
some that you deal with with a, with a check or a, an X. And if you're sitting there thinking, I can't mark it with a check or an X, because what if someone near me sees that I marked it with a check or an X? Then you're dealing with number three, and we'll get to you in just a moment. <laughs> so here we go. Number one way we deal with pride. Just like Haman, we look down on others. We look down on others. This can be seen in our speech. It can be seen in our attitude. It can be seen in our avoidance. And sometimes is that we look down on them. Other times is that we quickly see their faults and don't really see our own. Kind of like that speck and beam issue, like, how can our eyesight be so eagle or hawk focused and we see that speck and that problem with them and bypass all of the issues that plank that we have in our eye? We look down on others. We've got a lot to deal with here, so let's look at number two. This is one I've had to deal with when we're too good to do certain tasks. Too good to do certain tasks. <laughs> I've walked past so many tasks and think, wow, boy, someone needs to clean that toilet. <laughs> someone needs to pick up that garbage. Too good to do certain tasks. You know, you heard about the boy who was sick and tired of all these stupid chores that his parents made him do. So he decided, that's it. I'm out of here, and I'm going to go join the army. Brilliant. Sometimes we have in our mind, this, stuff's a, this stuff is beneath me. Someone else can go do that. Here's number three. When we don't admit we're wrong, when we don't admit we are wrong, Or we have to prove we're right. Not enough to let it go. Or when it becomes understandable that you're correct, it's time to really up the volume and make sure they realize why I'm right and how much I'm right. But when we don't admit we're wrong, I have found in my life no one has yet to argue with my apology. And when I found I've been wrong, and you just come out with it, it's like game over. That's the end. I remember reading a story about a guy named Uncle Zeke who lived in Molshu, Texas. And he would never admit he was wrong ever for any reason one day, Uncle Zeke was walking along a street, and he happened to shuffle into a blacksmith shop and sawdust all over the floor. And What he didn't know was just before he got there, the blacksmith had been working with an uncooperative horseshoe and beat this thing until it was black. It was still piping hot, but it wouldn't cooperate. So the, um, 
So the man just tossed it over in the sawdust, and Zeke walked in, looked down and saw that black horseshoe, and uh, he reached down, and he picked it up, not knowing it was still hot, and naturally, he just dropped it really fast. The old blacksmith looked over at, him, at his over his glasses and said, uh, hey, kind of hot, ain't it, Zeke? And you know what Zeke said, that little stinker? He said, no, just doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. He said, it's like, really? When we don't admit we're wrong, pride. Here's number four. Uh, men, men, can we pay careful attention to number four? We're terrible with this. And if you say you're not terrible with this, refer to number three. When we fail to seek help. Either it's pride because we don't want people to know we're not perfect. Like, wow, what a shocking revelation. Or it's pride in that we feel we can handle it on our own. I got this. I don't need help. We were talking about it in our staff this week. Think about it. Even time away from God's word or prayer conveys the message, I think I've got this on my own. You know, Bible is kind of elective. God's word, you know, may give some helpful tidbits, but I think I've really got this taken care of all by my lonesome. And we fail to seek help. It's number four. Here's number five. When we think we are indispensable. When we think we are indispensable, this will never succeed without me. They can't do this without me. My favorite poem about pride and indispensability is this one. This is awesome. Sometime when you're feeling important. Some time when your ego's way up. Some time when you take it for granted that you are the prize-winning pup. Some time when you feel that your absence would leave an unfillable hole. Just follow these simple instructions and see how it humbles your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to your wrist. Now pull it out fast, and the hole that remains is the measure of how much you'll be missed. You may splash all you please as you enter and stir up the water galore, but stop, and you'll find in a minute it's back where it once was before. And here's number six. And if there's one that probably all of us could embrace this morning as far as dealing with pride and one of the biggest evidences of it 
is number six. Mine is checked on number six. When we refuse to forgive. I got thinking about it. How is refusing to forgive an issue of pride? And consider this in your thinking. If God, who has been offended more, and we would agree with that, right? If God, who has been offended more, if he forgives, who do we think we are to not forgive? Can you follow that? If God, who has been offended way more than us, if he forgives, who are we to not? Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Notice it just doesn't say forgive, but forgiving one another just as God, for Christ's sake, forgives you. Who are we to think we don't have to pardon others they're wrong? One person has said unforgiveness is merely a God complex. It's a messed up thought of self-importance and superiority is pride. And I happen to agree. Another has said um, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. So there is someone who is absolutely perfect and in all honesty could have boasted of being superior to everyone else is Jesus Christ. I've got a passage of scripture I'd love for us to read together in Philippians 2. And I just want us to think about this. Here's the one who really is above everyone, who holds a supreme position who didn't need to stoop to anything. And notice this passage from Philippians 2 and what it tells us about him. Let's, let's read it together. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death. So the message today isn't merely don't be proud. Proud like anything else will never be conquered just with its removal. We need to replace it. And we need to replace it with the very same thing that Jesus Christ showed us in his own life. It's humility. I want to give you, for each of the items above, I want to give you something that we can use to replace those things and hopefully these can be a help to us as we truly emulate this awesome, humble, forgiving spirit of Jesus Christ. Number one, instead of looking down on others, let's just say for, forget looking down on others and replace it with building them up. 
And so on your sheet there, you just, just cross out looking down on others and, and put in there, build them up. Build them up. Imagine the impact that you can have on those around you by elevating them through your encouragement. I guarantee you we have way more opportunity to advance other individuals by being a cheerleader rather than being their referee. So take the opportunity to step into other people's lives and build them up and elevate them beyond where they truly are right now. Build them up. Here's the second one I want us to think about. Instead of being too good to do certain tasks, here's a biggie. Forget that. Stoop to serve. Stoop to serve. And you want to know the toughie? Oh, this gets me. Because you know it's pride when you're just about ready to stoop to serve and you hope some people are around to see you do it. You've been there? Kind of like the photo op for the politician. He's there at the low-income housing. Give me the hammer. Okay, back with the nail. Okay, thank you. Where's my limo? You know, type of a thing. We want the recognition for stooping to serve, but imagine stooping to serve and doing it when no one knows. And then here's even tougher. You don't even tell anyone. That lets us know we're really dealing with this stinking weed of pride when we can stoop to serve, when no one's around and we tell no one, and it's just our little secret with God. That's cool. Here's number three. When we don't admit we're wrong, imagine replacing that with just being transparent. We all know you're wrong. You all know I'm wrong. And I really believe more people will be helped with our openness rather than our perfection. I don't know of anyone who's ever been helped when they come up with their challenge and say, wow, I have no idea what you're going through because I don't deal with anything like that. It doesn't help anyone. I think our openness, our transparency can truly be a help in someone else's life. So talk about it. Share it. Be honest of what God's brought you through. And let him use your story to help other people be transparent. Here's number four, this one. Men, be ready for it. When we fail to seek help, just forget that junk. And quickly partner. Quickly partner with others. Quickly partner with help. Step into a relationship that can truly assist you. And partner it with number three above. Be transparent. <coughs> Excuse me, if some of you are struggling with things, I'll tell you some of the best places to jump into. One's a small group. We can open up in those settings, and you know it's what we always say, what happens in the group stays in the group, you know? We can help each other. Men, we've got man church. Guys get together and work on men things. And that's about as much as I can tell you about man church. 
We need relationships with each other where we can quickly partner and get the help that we need. It does us no good to just put a blanket over our sin, to pick up the rug and sweep it underneath. If we hide our sin and regard iniquity in our heart, the Bible says, then God is far from us. We need that help. Here's the next one. Number five, when we think we're indispensable, here's the best thing you could do. Mentor others. Mentor others, acknowledge others' abilities and contributions. Get someone ready to replace you. Instead of thinking no one could ever do this, think, I wonder who else could do this and build into their lives. And then here's number six. When we refuse to forgive, quickly pardon. And then I'm going to add to that one other thing. Because if you're anything like me, I'll forgive him. And then about an hour later, I'm still wrestling with it. And I would say in there, quickly and repeatedly pardon. We're not as good as God. God in one moment in history hung on a cross and died for us and pardoned the sin of those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. And I wish we could be that good where I say, yes, I forgive you, and it's all gone. And the reality is, how many times do I drudge this thing back and think about it and hold it against them? And we need to pardon, and repeatedly so, and beat this thing down and get it away from us for us to be more like the person Jesus Christ. And so if you're with me, you deal with this issue, this sin of superiority and pride, and we all do, then would you just close your eyes, please? You and I, just look inside. No one else needs to know what you're thinking and what's going on right now. Just you and God. And I want you to look at that list of six and say, what things do I deal with? What are the issues I deal with? And how can I replace them? And how can I replace them now? Because pride separates. Pride separates people. Sadly, if we're proud, it separates us and God because the Bible says God resists the proud And I don't want to be in that spot. That I need help. I need a way out. And the Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if you want help, and you want grace, forget about being superior. humble, be transparent, be forgiving, be serving, be Jesus, and let him use you. Right where you're at, would you stand with me? I just want to pray. Right now, some pastors say, would you raise your hand? Well, you know what? That game's over. All our hands are raised this morning. 
we all got things to think about and work through on this. And I just want to pray for you and for me. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to have this humility that is so rare today in our world. God, help us to have the mantra of others first, not us. And use us like you did Jesus to point more people to worship this God that we know and love. So Father, use us in humility to bridge the gap in our homes with our spouse, with our kids, in our church, in our work, with our neighbor, in our community. All for your honor and glory. And all these fake Calvary said. Well, you can tell I'm not feeling well because I actually ended on time. I got another word for humility. I think it fits it pretty well. It's just called honesty. Just honesty. Just being really who we are. Not better than who we are. Not concealed in who we are. But honesty. I think through that, we really get to help other people and be Jesus to them. God bless your week. Be encouraged. See who you can help. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Blessings.